welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Chris Chinchilla. Hopefully you can see me, hear me, maybe even reading. But you're not reading what I'm saying, unless you read the uh, transcript that I put out. <laughs> In which case it probably says something random. Um, this week I have an interview with Christian Nunziato, who's the writer of Pulumi in Action. Pulumi is a relatively new infrastructure as code tool, and he is currently working on a book for Manning. And we talk about his early access book and how he wrote the book and what Plumie is and all that kind of stuff. Um, but first, here are my links for the week. First, actually, an article from uh, Leon Kellyon, sorry, Leo Kellyon on the BBC that I was expected to hear more about, but I, I didn't, strangely. Huawei is planning on shifting its phones to Harmony from 2021 instead of Android. And as far as I can tell, this is not just in one country. This is globally, not just in China or anywhere like that. This is, I suppose, to reduce its reliance on uh, on Android, on Google, an American company, an American product, because it's having its ongoing trade wars there. Um, and interestingly, the more I read here, I, I find it interesting to see what it will be like and what kind of legal issues they may find themselves in. Um, because they do mention somewhere in here, I have to find it. Um, I can't quite find it. Some here, yeah. Um, that they are helping developers and saying that it will be relatively easy to recode apps already written for Android, which would imply they're using some kind of Java framework-esque framework. And of course, Google themselves got into trouble with Android and Oracle claiming that they reverse engineered a lot of Java APIs. And I wonder if Huawei might find themselves in a similar situation if they make it too close to Android <laughs> and follow too many APIs and similarities, because this is always a problem that, and it also mentions in this article, many other companies have tried to make alternative operating systems, um, and they've all somewhat failed, mostly because you couldn't get um, app writers to, to make applications, including Samsung, Amazon, Microsoft, Canonical, and also Firefox. They left off that list on Mozilla. But um, I also... I also wonder if now with progressive web apps, there's even a need to have separate app platforms as much as I would like to have them. Could be an interesting perspective to, to think about there. So we will see how that, how that goes, how it works for them. Obviously, in certain territories, they'll be more successful than others, um, especially in the West where we tend to use Google services a lot more. Uh, you, could, you could argue that some privacy... <laughs> Privacy people might want to move away from Google, but probably not to an operating system built by someone like Huawei. But anyway, interesting times. Would you use it? Um, would you buy a Huawei phone without Android? Love to hear from you. And next on The Guardian. From, um, actually, there is no author here. It's The Guardian US Opinion Editors. That is the author. And... There was an article before this. I seem to have been continuing the saga of GPT-3 over the past few weeks, weeks. And there was an article that The Guardian put out a little bit before this article that was written mostly by GPT-3. And it was sort of about um, what GPT-3 thinks, if that is a way of phrasing that. 
about itself and how it relates to, to humanity and what it plans to do and not do in relation to humanity. Sounds all very strange to be describing this, so try to explain it. And then this article talks about how they edited that article, which I think the editing process is slightly different. I'm not sure. It's hard to, to, to know exactly because obviously normally when you edit, you would edit the, the, the final quote-unquote outcome and then another human takes that. But I'm guessing the editing here was probably more ahead of time. Otherwise, if you're, well, if you're, if you're editing a piece written by AI, is it written by AI anymore? That's another interesting perspective to think about. So I'm guessing this was more uh, pre-editing, um, training it, providing it with enough impetus. And actually, interestingly here, just to show that uh, there's nothing to worry about quite yet, firstly, they had to ask a computer scientist to, to, <laughs> to help them get the article in the first place, which is probably more expensive than a journalist, definitely more expensive than a journalist. So there's that, although I guess that scales more quickly. Um, and they had a prompt, they had uh, word counts, a rough style and things like that. They did say that the, the sort of pre-editing involved a little bit of, of, of weaving it over time to get it to um, kind of have the right angle and the right content. There were some drafts um, which varied from short to long, as you can see here. And uh, the first few paragraphs were actually the human prompt as well. But anyway, it's quite a fascinating... So they, let's see, did they edit... They did edit for style and clarity, removing some spammy stray text, which is interesting. So that it really does get into the perspective of, is it written by AI if it's edited by a human? Don't know. I mean, people use writing prompts all the time, um, also for style and grammar and things like that. So I'm not sure. But it's quite a fascinating piece about... Um, about the process and some of it might give you some hope and some of it might give you some fear to be blunt next this one made me giggle <laughs> this was reported in a few places but this one is specifically by stephanie malott on um, pc mag um, about american customs seizing oneplus buds as a uh, Violating Apple trademark. I actually have a pair here, <laughs> which uh, which I should actually just switch back to the camera and check. You can actually, there we go. I won't open the box because then it'll start connecting. Um, and I mean, they, I, to be honest with you, I don't really know enough what uh, AirPods look like, but I guess the case alone does look a little similar. They're not. I don't think they're quite as good as, as AirPods. Uh, I'm not a big fan of headphones like that, to be honest with you. But I got sent them for free with the phone I bought. I didn't just get sent it for free so can't really complain and they're good for summer because they don't have the big over the ear kind of heat and this uh, this photo did a lot of uh, the rounds online as people saying there's not really a trademark violation uh, that's actually a well-known semi-well-known product but I guess it starts to beg the question of when does one become the other <laughs> if someone relatively untrained thinks they're a violation and I mean they're not ridiculously cheap they're obviously cheaper than apples but yeah, there's an interesting kind of side discussion there around uh, should they have been allowed to be made in the first place if they were so easily mistaken? Don't know. Not sure if they, I guess they work with an iPhone, not with, I mean, they, the, the smart they have only even work with the OnePlus. So hard to say. But anyway, there's an interesting kind of side story that comes a little bit out of an initial online meme joke, shall we say.
And then finally, actually, there's been a lot of stories. There's one still developing, which I'm not covering, that being the um, potential new ownership of TikTok. Maybe I'll talk about that uh, later, uh, next week. But there was one here. I think this font is probably quite small. Let me, uh, it seems okay. About NVIDIA buying part of ARM, I think. Yeah, not acquiring the IoT services. And it still is waiting for regulatory approval. Now, ARM has been looking for a buyer. Well, to be precise, SoftBank has been looking for a buyer for ARM, which is interesting because it's probably one of their few profitable um, ventures. But anyway, um, I think they just need to pay back some debt. SoftBank, I think six months ago, I was constantly talking about them taking over the world. And now they seem to be rapidly vanishing. But NVIDIA, another chip manufacturer, is looking to take over some of that. Now, that's interesting. NVIDIA is kind of a relatively neutral chip manufacturer. They don't really make CPUs. They're mostly on the graphics and um, kind of machine learning chips. So it's a pretty good um, pairing. I would worry that some may worry about monopoly there. I'm not sure. But then also the combination of NVIDIA and ARM could create a very good counterpoint to an existing monopoly, i.e. Intel, who have been somewhat too dominant for some time. But it's interesting. I'm not really sure what this is going to mean. Um, I don't think it really has any negative outcomes for any of their main clients, companies like Apple, for example. I don't think they have anything really to lose, probably more to gain, maybe. Not sure. But it's interesting news, and we will see over the next 18 months how it actually plays out. Obviously, this will be long after Apple's rumored um, ARM-based Macs, but there's obviously other many other devices already using ARM anyway. So who knows? We shall see what happens there. That was my links for the week. And now, just showing you a preview here for people on the video. Oops, no, I don't want to print the page. I want to zoom in on the page. Uh, next is my interview with Christian Nunziato, and we cover his new book in progress, Palumi in Action. And stay tuned to the end of the interview because I will recap some discussion. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my name is Christian Anciato. Um I'm I'm just a web developer. Um, I've been building uh, web apps, various kinds, uh, in kind of generally full stack capacity for uh, probably 20 years now, a long time, um, going back to the late 90s. Um, and I say I'm a, I'm a full stack developer. Uh, I, I like to focus primarily on the front end. So I, I love front end development, JavaScript, CSS, kind of all that stuff. But I also really like, um, you know, being able to work uh, on services and backend systems and stuff too, so that I can kind of do everything. Um, and uh, as a as a developer, um, I am also interested in being able to uh, kind of manage my own infrastructure beyond just the app running applications and the services that back them, but actually like managing the cloud things that power them or the on-prem infrastructure that powers them and stuff like that. So I, I got interested in that at a certain point when I kind of realized, oh, I don't know anything about this stuff. I, I better go out and learn it. And so I kind of did. And that's how I ended up where I am. But we're here specifically to talk about a book <laughs> you have finished or are still working on? Or, or is no, it I'm me? still working it's on it. So yeah. 
It's a meat, yeah. Um, um, which stands for, yeah. what does it stand for again? Uh, <laughs> Manning Early Access Program. That's, that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. And it's, it's, oh, go ahead. And the topic is Pulumi in action. So tell, Pulumi is part of a family of tools that are possibly familiar <laughs> to people, but I'm not sure if Pulumi is that familiar to people. So yeah, what, what problem are people trying to solve if they're reaching for Pulumi? Yeah. Uh, so Plumi is a, a, it's an open source command line tool and like a set of uh, language SDKs. So there's like JavaScript libraries and C-sharp libraries and things like that. Depending on what language you prefer, there are probably SDKs available for it. But it, it is part of this uh, a family of tools uh, called infrastructure as code tools. And <clears throat> specifically, it is a provisioning tool. So it is a tool that you use if you want to go and create and manage uh, cloud infrastructure, typically. So if you, if you want to work with AWS or Azure or Google Cloud or DigitalOcean or one of those, um, you can use Pulumi to uh, write programs in, in a language that you know, like a JavaScript, or in my case, I write a lot of TypeScript, um, to provision AWS resources um, in code and run that code and just kind of make it happen and, and manage it in a declarative and infrastructure as code friendly way. And yeah. as far as I am aware, Pulumi is was started by a reasonably well-known company, I think, or it's sort of owned by, or what's its history? Yeah, uh, it was started by uh, a guy, a couple guys, uh, Joe Duffy and Eric Rudder, both came from Microsoft. Um, so Joe Joe ran like uh, the languages group, I think, at Microsoft. Uh, so he worked a lot on .NET and, and C-Sharp and sort of all those languages. Um, so And Eric was an executive at, at Microsoft. And so Plumi is just a startup um, that is just independently an independent company and, and a VC-funded startup. Um, and uh, yeah, so and that, so, that, so it's, it started a few years ago, I believe. Um, and they just kind of wanted to go out and build um, a, a more developer-friendly way, I think, to manage infrastructure that this... These tools have historically kind of been more friendly to uh, folks that are very familiar with the kind of operational domain. You know what I mean? Um, and and uh, Pulumi is, is certainly friendly to those folks too, but but also very friendly to developers. And so that's kind of why I was attracted to it as a developer. I was like, this is great. I can write languages I already know um, to do stuff that I don't know how to do yet. So, yeah. And how does it compare to... Um Two other tools. I can see you have a chef poster in the background. Oh, I do, yes. Um, there's also <laughs> yeah. tools like um, Terraform, uh, yeah. Ansible, I think, is somewhat related. Yep. There's many of these tools in this kind of yeah. modern um, infrastructure as code um, paradigm practice. So how does, it com- how does it compare to those? Yeah. So there's like there's two in the kind of the infrastructure as code Realm. There's kind of two buckets of tools, two classes of tools. Uh, there's uh, there one is one set is called configuration management tools, and that is where tools like Chef and Ansible and Puppet and Salt. You've maybe heard of that one. Those tools fall into that bucket. And configuration management is concerned with taking some existing infrastructure, whether that's a virtual machine or or a server in a rack somewhere, and with code. Outfitting that machine, basically. So you, with Chef, for example, which is, I worked at Chef for a while. At Chef, you write recipes in Ruby 
that say, you know, install Nginx and install various things and set up this thing as a service. You'll write a little Ruby program, run that program with Chef, for example, and and it will be so on whatever machine that you run it on. Um, and so the idea with config management tools is that whether they're Ansible or whatever, they uh, they they kind of keep infrastructure managed over time. You know, so long-lived infrastructure is sort of the domain of configuration management. In the other set of uh, in the other bucket is provisioning tools. These are tools like Pulumi, Terraform, uh, AWS CloudFormation. Um, these tools are concerned with creating infrastructure, creating virtual cloud infrastructure. Um, so yeah, so the, you you make the stuff and then you, you can manage it and manage changes to it over time in a similar way. But so that's kind of how the two the two buckets differ. Um, Pulumi and Terraform are pr- probably most alike in that they are concerned with taking s- some code. Uh, in Terraform's case, it's like you write in a JSON-like uh, language of just you know sort of blocks of infrastructure definition, um, and you can point that code at a cloud provider like AWS or Azure GCP and run it with Terraform, say, and Terraform will go and talk directly to that cloud to make that stuff happen. Same is the case for Pulumi. So you write a code, you'll write a program in say JavaScript code, um, run that code with Pulumi and Pulumi will go and talk directly to the cloud provider to, to make that happen. So does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, so if you worked with chef for a while and you've obviously, I guess, tried some others, what made you decide to write a book about Pulumi? Do you like it more or is it just because it's newer and no one had written a book yet? Like, <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure it was a great idea for me to write a book of any kind, actually. Uh, it's a lot of work, but like uh, the, the story behind the sort of my decision to want to even do this was pr- probably what kind of led me to Pulumi to begin with. So I was at Chef, as I said, and I was working on a, a thing called Habitat, which is like an application packaging platform. And that was, that was great. I love that project. And I had really high hopes for that project as a developer, because my hope was that developers would uh, see this packaging system and, and be drawn to it to package and deploy their applications. And I thought this was going to be great. And it kind of never caught on because it ended up being really oriented around uh, uh, shell scripting languages like Bash and stuff that developers just aren't usually spending a lot of time doing. So I kind of got a little discouraged by that experience, even though, even though Habitat is great, it just developers just didn't really care. And I want, as a developer myself, I wanted to kind of bring that story and it just kind of didn't take hold. I sort of one day randomly discovered Pulumi just by kind of looking to see what some of my old friends were up to. And one of them happened to end up at Pulumi. And I said, oh, what's this thing? And I noticed it and I said, oh, it's, you know, cloud, cloud uh, native infrastructure as code. Okay. I know a little bit about infrastructure as code. I'll check it out. And when I saw it was TypeScript, I was like, ooh, okay, that's interesting because I know TypeScript. I like TypeScript. Let me see what this is all about. And then when I kind of kicked the tires on it a little bit, um, it just was very comfortable. I just immediately knew kind of how to use it. The, the language is such an important part of the experience of, of using anything. You know, what language am I using to express myself? Um, so Pulumi to me was uh, just, it kind of answered a lot of my prayers, <laughs> you know, for, for sort of a full stack developer who really wants to manage the whole stack, it looked like I could do it with languages I already kind of knew. And, and it turns out that that, that was, that was the case. There's much more to it than that. But to me, that was enough. It was like, this is, this is great. So I went to Pulumi, started working on the product for a while. And, um, and it's just, I haven't, I haven't 
seen, like I've just been delighted with a, how it's taken shape myself to how I've seen it take shape, but just others seem to really enjoy it. So I thought, okay, maybe this, maybe it's time to write a book that is developer oriented for infrastructure that basically brings the story to developers. It says, you can do this. I'm going to show you how to do it. You don't have to know all the AWS things. You don't have to be a cloud uh, infrastructure expert. Let's just start with something that we know, which is TypeScript and go from there and we'll introduce gradually concepts of cloud um, topologies and things like that, like as we need. But mostly it's a book that's just about building applications with Pulumi uh, in the cloud. So actually this is an interesting, as you've already pointed out, it's an interesting difference between the way that a lot of these work. Uh, And it's kind of one of the, um, the, opening paragraphs on the book description, which, which we'll come to more, that you don't have to learn a new uh, config language. Well, I'm guessing you have to learn some new concepts, but you don't have to learn a new config language. You can um, write your infrastructure as code in code. It's actually infrastructure as yeah. code, and it's almost purest form. Um, yeah. There is a limit on these at the moment. I see it's um, Node. You mentioned Java, TypeScript, JavaScript, or any other Node.js mm-hmm. compatible language. Not sure what others there are, but uh, Python, <laughs> .NET Core, yeah. C Sharp, F Sharp, <clears throat> Go. Um, That's right. Which is, uh, there's a couple of very, very large programming languages missed there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Ruby and Java. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> so what's this actually like then as a developer? Do you write... Um, do you write methods into your existing code base or do you write things to the side of your code base? Like how do you actually yeah. bring Pulumi into your project? The short, the short way of describing it is, as you just said, you, you, you write it to the side of your code base typically. So when, when I'm starting out, it depends on the application, but uh, you, you, down, you download the Pulumi command line tool and you run a command, Pulumi new TypeScript with AWS, essentially it'll give you a little, it'll, generate some templates for you, a running program. It's a very simple program that just like creates an S3 bucket, you know, so you can see, okay, this is a, this is a program. I know it's going to work. All of the node dependencies are already downloaded and so on. And it just, it's a folder with a few files in it. And you run Pulumi with that, uh, that, with that code there, literally there's a, like, if you choose TypeScript, there's an index.ts file that comprises the, the Pulumi program, run that program. Uh, and as long as you have, your uh, AWS credentials say set and your in, as environment variables. So AWS gives you like an access, couple of access keys that you set. Pulumi will detect those for you. And when you run Pulumi with that program, it'll produce that S3 bucket for you. So you can just see, okay, I can see how it works inside of that code. The, the inside of that program, <clears throat> the one line of that program uh, just d- declares um, like a like a JavaScript object. It just says, you know, the code is literally like var foo equals new S3 bucket, and you pass it a name. And that, what's interesting about and slightly different about Pulumi is that um, you write code that is imperative code. It's code that like you're doing, you're saying var foo equals new thing. And when you run that with code, right, with Node, it will uh, evaluate that code and produce that object. But what's actually happening as you develop that program. You may add a bucket, add an API gateway and a database declaration and stuff like that, a virtual machine. All of those are like declared as new 
constructors, basically new a new AWS dot virtual machine or something like it. It's a little more complicated, but it's basically that. Pulumi will evaluate that program, um, figure out uh, which resources you have declared in it, so that by the time when the program runs, it will produce for you a graph of what the end result of the infrastructure you mean to create is. And when that's done, so that's like, you can think of that as just like a, a list of objects basically that are maybe related to one another, but like objects in memory, you know, like a JavaScript set of JavaScript objects in memory. And it will then go to the cloud provider to create those things. So it is, it is imperatively written, but the end result is a declarative representation of the end state that you want your infrastructure to be in. I don't know if that's, hopefully that's your listeners will get where I'm going with that. I don't want to be too deep in the weeds. On I think so. People, but, and I mean, if you okay. wanted to, I suppose you could do something quote unquote clever with Pulumi and actually trigger infrastructure from your code as well. If you really wanted to, I'm not hundred percent sure if there's a use case for that, but <laughs> there is actually, there is a, like, yeah, you mean um, instead of using the command line tool to go and provision infrastructure, you might have a yeah, so we are actually, uh, we've heard a lot of this, but a lot from people that want to do this, um, usually because they, they like the way that Pulumi works, but they want to be able to compose on top of it. And so we're, we're developing um, a runtime, set of runtime libraries that do exactly what you're describing. Um, so those are kind of, and it's an open source project, so you can see this happening in github.com slash Pulumi, Pulumi, where we're developing what we're calling a runtime yeah. API, which, which will let you do just that, yeah. You keep you keep saying we. So do you work with Pulumi, or do you just? Oh, it says, yes, okay. I do. I, I didn't mention that. I do. <laughs> yeah. So when back at the earlier part of our conversation, we we talked about kind of like how I came to be interested in this stuff a little bit. I I, I went to work at Pulumi after realizing like, oh, this is this is what I think needs to exist, you know. And so having been at Chef already for five or six years, I was like, okay. I'm, I'm ready for a change. And that's kind of when I went to work at Pulumi. I said, I, w- I want to work on this thing. And so I worked on it for a while before deciding to write the book. Yeah. Because you, you, you've you said several times you're just a web developer, but you have worked at Chef and Pulumi. So <laughs> I think you're underselling yourself just slightly. <laughs> uh, I, I, st- I mean, I, maybe, but uh, but it, I don't know. I still, I, I mostly use Pulumi myself to build silly little web apps like uh um, and so I just think of myself still as a web developer who just wants to do infrastructure. And the thing about this stuff is that I think it intimidates a lot of people. I've done a little bit of speaking, a very little bit of speaking. And the sense I get from developers is like, I'm interested in this. It kind of scares me because I don't know what it's going to cost. I don't really know what I'm getting myself into here. And I think Pulumi is really the only tool that I'm aware of out there that kind of lets you tiptoe in as a developer. You know what I mean? Um, so that, you know, yeah. I work on on the web systems. So I we have we have two web things currently. We have Pulumi.com, which is our like documentation and kind of like um, you know it's got our pricing and stuff on it. It's kind of like our public website. Uh, it documents all of our libraries and SDKs and stuff and our blog and such. I work on uh, just the delivery of that whole thing from you know building the layouts and all of that to just operationalizing the delivery of it. It's a pretty big website, so that's a job in and of itself. And I also work on the Pulumi service, which is our state management service. And it has like a, an angular front end 
Uh, so I, I kind of work on that on, on the team that manages that. So those two web things are what I do at Pulumi. So still, still mainly web stuff, um, just also more. <laughs> and yeah. I'm guessing Pulumi uses Pulumi. Otherwise, that would be very hypocritical. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. Uh, we you know, we deliver it with itself, as they say. Uh, so yeah. yeah. So why did you decide to write the book? Did did someone suggest it? Did you suggest it? Um, were your was your boss happy <laughs> that you decided to uh, write a book? Yeah, I think randomly. I think the way that it worked out actually was that randomly um, uh, Manning reached out to um, someone at Pulumi and and uh, and in a Slack channel, someone asked, "Hey, does anyone write a book?" And I and the thing is, I, I've I've also I'm a huge Manning fan. I've got like a ton of Manning books. Manning is my favorite publisher. And I, my background, my, my background, but my, I studied English as an undergrad. So I've always kind of been interested in writing and I worked as a tech writer for a little while out of college. Um, so I've always wanted to write a book. Um, and so I jumped at the chance. I was like, this, this is, this is a publisher that I love. I think I have a book I could actually write. But the thing is I've, I've learned a lot about infrastructure, but I don't know that I'm the right person to write a book, say about infrastructure as code for, like SREs or like people that are operational specialists. Like I'm not that person, but I can speak to a developer about this subject. And so I thought I'm just going to try this. So when I proposed the book, I very kind of strictly proposed it as a, a thing for full stack developers, um, you know, to, uh, to keep it focused. Um, yeah. And so that's, so I just wrote a proposal and, and then, uh, and then that, yeah, started writing and it's, uh, it's, it's been a, a challenging process because a lot of the stuff that we spend our years working on ends up kind of in the deep recesses of our minds. And we, we can talk about it to folks that know what we're talking about, but when you try to deliver this kind of material to a new audience, it's really hard to, get, to find the words to describe oh. it in a way that's accessible. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know. I, so I have, I still am a tech writer to okay, quote, yeah. unquote tech journalism stuff is, is, um, a minor part of what I do. Um, and I have written books for other people. I've also reviewed books for Manning. Oh. I did a video course for Manning. I haven't actually done a book book. Oh, I did awesome. a video course. Um, what course did you do? The, uh, CSS in depth. Um, oh, oh wow. I that's great. I used to cover, I used to actually do a lot of um, writing on uh, mobile web and mobile development. And then I did that book uh -huh. and in the process of the book, I stopped working in that space. So when it came to promoting the book, I was kind of over the topic already. So, <laughs> so oh, yeah. which is, which yeah. is unfortunate. Um, but your well, CSS, I mean, I, I love CSS and I have, I have the book version of CSS in depth. I'll have to check out your, your video uh, course. It's great. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, it was, it was a lot of work. Video is a whole other bit of it fun. Um, yeah. But uh, it's interesting you say about writing a book because, as, as you've also done tech writing too, you know, with tech writing, you kind of just, well, it's, it's not easy. I don't want to say it's easy, but you know, you can write content and having a narrative between the content is useful, but it's not essential. It's a good to have, but it's not that important. People don't read documentation yeah. from start to finish, but a book people yeah. for the most part, read it from start to finish. So when someone says, Oh, can we move chapter three to chapter seven? that really yeah. messes everything up and you have to almost kind of yeah. go back through everything again. So. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the chapter that I'm working on right now is chapter three 
and I'm trying to I'm trying to like describe projects and stacks and 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 what they are. And yes, you could just describe. Okay, well, a stack is a collection of resources, for example. And here is how you use the Pulumi stack command to do that. But it, but what I really want to do is describe to someone why these abstractions exist and why they were what they're good for, so that you can not just know how to type the things out right, but know how to think about them um, more broadly so that you can kind of be more successful beyond just the nuts and bolts of working with stuff. Yeah. So the question I've wanted to ask you ever since I saw you appear on video is, did you use the typewriter behind you to write the book? (laughs) I wish. No, that's barely operational anymore. My kids have beaten that poor thing up so badly. Uh, no, I use a. I actually use a thing called Scrivener to yep. write. Uh, I know it well, I, I use I it mostly it. for my oh, fiction work. I don't tend to use it for tech writing work, but um, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. yeah. I've been really. It took me a while to discover it. For a while, I was just trying to write in Markdown, um, but I found I found it a really useful tool for keeping things organized. And actually, okay. maybe you could, because this is. I mean, I have covered um, the more um, Markdowny type writing process before in bits and pieces throughout my podcasts and other sorts of um, <laughs> outputs. I don't know what the right word to say is. Um, yeah. Scrivener is a tool that comes up a lot. Um, it's mostly Mac, but it's also on Windows and iOS. Maybe uh, you could describe just very briefly why you used it and why it was helpful to you in writing a book as opposed to just doing a lot of loose text files. Like, What did you find worth paying the however much it is not crazy expensive but um why was it worth it to you and then what did it let you do that you couldn't do another way there are various things that it lets you do that that don't become apparent and you don't realize you need these things until you've been at it for a little while so um when you just start writing say the first chapter you can kind of just get by with just about anything you can you can write in word or or I was writing in Visual Studio Code, writing Markdown, um, or ASCII doc, I guess, is the format that Manning wants. Yeah. Um, oh, really? And oh, that's they, okay. They've, they've changed a little bit then. That, that's actually, yeah. ASCII doc has a lot of supporters in the tech writing space. It's rapidly uh, rising. <laughs> yeah. 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 So so the, the um, I knew that the end result was going to have to be ASCII doc because I didn't want to work in Word. Because no, on Mac, it's well, Word is so. not good for long-form content anyway, contrary to what people think. Yeah. 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 So, but, uh, but what I found as I got into like, this is going to sound silly, but I'd get into chapter two and then chapter three and just the amount of stuff that I would accumulate in terms of research bits and links to websites and notes and sort of all that stuff that, that you pile up as you're trying. Oh, I should mention that in the book. And this is a great quote from this other book. I, I got to put that somewhere. That stuff um, is harder. It, it becomes harder and harder to keep track of because it it happens in many different formats. It might be a web page, it might be some text, it might be a screenshot of something, whatever. Um, when once you get into like the third chapter or so, that's the, that stuff is just there's so much of it to manage. You just need some way to manage it. So I I, I for me, biggest benefits of Scrivener have well there have been three great benefits. One is uh, the references tooling that it gives you, so that it gives you a little bucket for handling all that differently shaped media that supports your book. Um, the second thing is uh, the way that you can structure documents and sub documents is very uh, amenable to this kind of writing. So, you know, chapters and sections and subsections, you can sort of move documents pretty easily there. Um, and then the third thing is um, they have this, it has this uh, feature that is called the cork board 
which, which is like, it's like index card view of all of your different um, sections that really, for me anyway, visually helps me. I'm on a wide monitor here. I can look at the trajectory of the, of the cards, each one having a little synopsis. So in a given chapter, there might be 10 or 12 little synopsis, little cards that describe each section that I'm trying to cover. And I can just look at that and um, see what the shape of the overall chapter is from a high level. So those are kind of the three. And then I guess there's a fourth thing is you can export to ASCII. Yeah, I was about to ask that. I, I know it definitely does Markdown. I um, didn't yeah. realize you did ASCII doc now. That's actually interesting that they've adopted that. It's a little tricky because you, ha- you have to kind of export it. There's like the advanced settings area, whatever, where you can, you can have it invoke like an executable program for you. So if you have them invoke Pandoc or something, you can say Pandoc output this markdown source file as ASCII doc, and it will do the transformation for you. And then you can twiddle the knobs and stuff to make the things be what you want them to be. It's painful, but you can do it. (laughs) Where are you up to? Uh, I can see there are two chapters available. You've just talked about starting chapter three. That doesn't necessarily mean you have done three out of 12 chapters. You might've done them out of order or something like that, but yeah, where are you up to right now? Uh, the third chapter i'm trying to I'm, my i'm just trying to wrap up the third chapter so that this chapter is it takes you the first chapter just introduces you to kind of you know what Pulumi is about and why you might care about it particularly if you're a developer but even if you aren't uh second chapter is uh, let's look at a quick simple application and kind of what it what it looks like so I, I give an example of a thing that i built to help my kids figure out like what order they can play games in. We play, play games once a week and figure out who plays first. It's always a pain. So I wrote a little program to fix that. Um, and they actually just asked me what the result was a few minutes ago because this, this is their game day. Um, and then the third chapter kind of goes a little bit deeper and sort of like takes some of the concepts that were introduced in the first two, project, Pulumi projects, Pulumi stacks, defines what those are and shows you how to, how to use them, how to configure uh, different environments for your applications, things like that. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. And after this, we'll move into different different kinds of applications, uh, serverless applications, container-based applications, databases, stuff like that, uh, on through the rest of the book and eventually get through to uh, CI/CD type stuff. And that's it. And I guess my final question, um, I won't, a question I normally ask people is like, what's next? What's next is the next nine chapters. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Would you recommend, and uh, you've got to be careful here, I guess, because it's in the middle of things. Would you recommend if someone wants to learn um, a technology in depth, would you recommend writing a book or would you say there might be, there might be easier or better ways to do that? Oh man. Uh, I think that uh, uh, you choose your, choose your material carefully, probably because if you're going to write a book, you kind of have to deliver the goods and, you know what I mean? And, and so that means you're going to spend a lot of time working with that thing. So if you really think you're going to love a thing, um, sure. It's a great, it's a great way to get deeply familiar with something for me. I, I kind of came to it already being somewhat familiar with it. So it was, I'm telling a different story, but, um, yeah, writing a book, I mean, it's, it takes, it takes about a year. Um, it doesn't seem like it should take that long, but it does. <laughs> and, uh, it's probably going to take a little longer in my case. 
Um, it does. Books do yeah. take some time. And of course, we know, especially in new technologies, that can mean that it's out of date by the time the book is published, which is a pain. Uh, <laughs> but I would say if, if, you, if you want to write, it's, it's a great way. I mean, I get, to, I get to meet you and folks like you that, that I wouldn't have gotten to meet otherwise. You know? like, so it's a great way to just kind of also reach out a little bit into the, into the world. It's kind of interesting in your, in your case because you're working for the company. So, you, yeah, you're probably meeting people from the community without having done the book as well. well but, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So for more about the book, um, I won't bother reading out the, the URL, but you can also go to manning.com and just look up Pulumi, P-U-L-U-M-I, um, and, and find out more. But for you personally, um, for, for updates on the book, for anything else you want people to know about, where, where and how can people find more about you? Best way is probably just Twitter. Uh, I'm C Nunciato on Twitter. I don't do a lot of tweeting, um, but I try to, I try to, um, tweet, uh, you know, I'll definitely keep updates on the book kind of there. Um, so yeah, that's just fine. That was my interview with Christian Nunciato talking about his book, Pulumian Action. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, I have discount codes. So, first, I have a 40% discount code for you to use um, on any of the products, actually, including Pulumian Action when it's available. This is uh, PodChintz19, P-O-D-C-H-I-N-C-H-19. You can get a 40% discount on any of the books there. And I also have five free ebook codes. Now, they're not very easy to give out because they're a um, bit of a kind of mixed, strange strings to give out um, through words. So I will put them in the newsletter version of this show. So you'll have to go along to christianchiller.com slash newsletters, sign up for my newsletter, um, or look actually where I republish the newsletter on Medium for one, my Medium account. Um, and find some of those discount codes. I'll probably also put a couple out on Twitter over the next few days. So you'll have to watch out for those if you'd like to get a free ebook from Manning, including Volumin Action, when it is finally ready. So what have I got to, um, to talk about for news from me? A few things. Um, Episode 31 of the Write the Docs podcast went out quite recently. We talked about site search with uh, Peter Levin. Uh, you can join myself and Jared and Tom talking to Peter there about site search, documentation search for the Write the Docs podcast. Uh, I don't have a massive amount of new content to report on right now, although I will have some soon. But I do have a lot of new videos as well. I think I mentioned actually that um, Stories About People episode one is now out. Uh, you can find details about that on anchor.fm forward slash stories about people. Find episode one there. You can also find episode one of the Board Game Jerk podcast on anchor.fm slash um, board game jerk. And you can also find all of this on christianchiller.com slash podcasts too. And I have a bunch of new video streams to mention to you. Um, I recently uh, did a live stream of um, Gentleman Bandit on Twitch and on YouTube, which you can find details of on christianchiller.com. And the designers of the game got in touch and uh, said they very much enjoyed it. So if you want to hear me generate a random poem 
um, from the perspective of a, of a kind of bandit, then, then have a look on Twitch or YouTube to find that. I haven't got any new um, exposés to cover since the last episode. I haven't done one. I'm just checking in my timelines in my brain if I have or I haven't. I don't think so. I did. Oh, no, I did Contentful. That's it, of course. Following up my podcast from last week, I covered Contentful. So you can also find that on Twitch or um, YouTube as well. Again, details on Um, Nothing much new to report right now. Just keep an eye on the various streams and podcasts as they come out. On the website, I've already mentioned about 20 times. So I'll just leave you to find that. And if you're watching the video, you can find the details down below. So until next time, thank you very much for joining.